0: It's time once again for Global Genes Denim Dash. From March 19th to the 27th, participants from all over the world will once again run, walk, swim, bike, or roll the 3.1 miles, that's 5K, to raise money and awareness to eliminate the challenges of rare disease. This is a virtual race, so you've got the flexibility to participate wherever and whenever is most convenient for you. For more information and to get registered, go to crowdrise.com forward slash denim dash. That's crowdrise.com forward slash denim dash. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is RareCast. Orphan: The Quest to Save Children with Rare Genetic Disorders, Philip Riley, a clinical geneticist turned venture capitalist, recounts the history of developing therapies to treat rare diseases. We spoke to Riley, a venture partner with Third Rock Ventures, about his own experiences in the clinic treating patients with rare diseases, how his perspective has changed as a venture investor, and what the future holds in the battle against rare diseases. Phil, thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, It's really great to be here. I really appreciate getting a chance to talk with you about Orphan.
0: We're we're going to talk about your new book, Orphan, the Quest to Save Children with Rare Genetic Disorders and the Past, Present, and Future of Treating Rare Diseases. I I thought it might be useful to have you introduce yourself to our listeners who might not be familiar with you. Can you explain your involvement with rare diseases and and your own journey from uh, being a medical geneticist to venture capitalist?
1: I'd be happy to. Um, like many doctors, I began uh, training as a physician in internal medicine back in the 80s. Um, I got very interested in uh, genetic diseases early on, and after my residency, I wound up uh, working in a large research and treatment institution uh, in near Boston that focused on patients with developmental disabilities like Down syndrome. And I became in charge of a hospital during the 80s and 90s that had over 800 institutionalized patients with severe, what we call in those days, mental retardation, much of it for genetic reasons. And the reason I made the transition after many years into the work I do now, which is starting companies to treat rare disorders, is that really I was so frustrated and often depressed that for my patients, I had no treatments for them. Our care of them was largely custodial. So I, one day I said, wonder if we can harness all the new tools in biotechnology to help some of these people.
0: But your book looks at the efforts to develop treatments for rare diseases. In a sense, you've organized the book around therapeutic approaches. What was the thinking in telling the story in those terms?
1: Uh, the most important thing about my book to me is that I offer a message of hope to patients and families, often parents, that these rare disorders that often isolate the family, uh, offer real possibilities in the future for therapy. So in doing that, I said, well, how can I tell the story of hope? And I decided to try and link it in time. So I went all the way back almost a, a, a cent, more than a century ago and pointed out that the first, and I talk about this in the first chapter, The first real therapy for genetic disease was simply diet. When you think about uh, our bodies, sometimes genetic diseases occur because we can't metabolize or handle some chemical in our food. And one of the greatest stories in genetics involves a disease called PKU in which we learned after many, many decades of trying that by lowering the amount of a certain amino acid in the diet called phenylalanine, We could really help these kids a great deal if we treated early. And then I moved forward in time. Um, For example, one of the other great advances in treating some genetic diseases was just learning to give blood transfusions in a timely manner, and that dates back to World War II. And we saved many lives of children with thalassemia and sickle cell disease and other blood disorders by managing their anemia. And then I kind of move forward. You're right, of course, I, I point out all the different modalities, but again, the theme is hope, and the heroes are the parents and the, the really small number of doctors who said, let's try this, and let's look in a serious way.
0: Well, we talk about rare diseases. We often hear about an estimated 7,000 diseases. You suggest there are actually many more than that. Where does that number come from, and why is it likely that there are many more?
1: Well, uh, The real answer is the number of genes that the human genome contains. For many years, we didn't know, of course. And for about 50 years, the guess was that each of us carries 100,000 genes in our cells. It turns out after the Human Genome Project that we carry about 22,000 genes in pairs in our cells. Of course, not all of the genes are acting necessarily at the same time. So if you think that in most cases every gene is important because evolution kept it there over millions and millions of years, then it's fair to posit that any one gene with mutations could constitute a disease, and that's more than 7,000. On the other hand, a really important question is how many treatable genetic diseases there are, because perhaps many kill the developing fetus or embryo early in life. Perhaps some are involve molecules that are... We say undruggable, and there's no approach to them. But I I think the number ultimately will will be much higher than 7,000, but the number of drugs to treat them may be much lower, perhaps 1,000 diseases or so. But we have a lot of time, and we're just beginning on this.
0: Well, as you think across the development of rare disease therapies, how would you say approaches have progressed as we've deepened our understanding of the molecular mechanism of of disease?
1: Well, I think – some of the, I'll just point out some of the great advances here. I think, uh, first of all, most of our work until about 30 years ago was small molecules. The listeners or, or readers would know these would be small molecules like aspirin and things like that, just uh, uh, things that we take daily to try and control something. But for many genetic disorders, that's not the answer because they involve errors in proteins, which are very, very, very big molecules very hard to make and very hard to deliver. And one of the great advances occurred with the development of what's called enzyme replacement therapy, and that involved all sort of the convergence of many things, particularly the ability to create cell lines and use genetic engineering to make almost like we make beer, to have big reactors and fermenters that could produce these proteins, and then we needed new technology purify them make sure they were clean and safe and then figure out a way to deliver them to cells. one of the amazing things about enzyme replacement therapy that was pioneered by the great company genzyme now owned by sanofi and others is that um they figured out thanks to work at nih how to hook these big proteins onto the surface of certain cells that would then internalize them and help to correct the disease and um, Gaucher disease, Pompeii disease, many of uh, the so-called storage diseases benefit from this, but we're not, we haven't perfected it because only about one one thousandth of the drug we give, this very, very expensive set of drugs, actually gets to where it's supposed to go. So we still have a lot more work there. There are other many exciting technologies. Some of the listeners or readers would have heard of something called gene editing, which is just at the beginning of its sort of therapeutic investigation. But that will theoretically allow us to edit out a bad mutation in the cell and correct it. Still a dream, but 10 years from now, probably a reality in terms of drug on the market.
0: Well, it takes on average seven years to get a diagnosis for a rare disease. We're still in the early days of the genomics revolution. How do you see rare disease diagnostics evolving?
1: That's a very important question, uh, and I would answer it on three fronts. First, uh, newborn screening, which uh, by law takes place in every state in the United States, remains a comparatively simple and somewhat antiquated technology. We don't use DNA testing in newborn screening, and we only screen now in the best state programs for about 50 disorders. I hope there won't be a revolution in newborn screening. Because one of the rules in genetic therapy is for bad genetic diseases, the earlier you treat, the better the outcome for the child. So we need advances there. On the DNA level, we also have what's called carrier screening. Uh, a great example that I talk about in the book is K. Sachs disease, where uh, you Each parent may be normal, but if they carry a mutation in a particular gene, and those mutations are both handed down to the baby, the baby gets a very severe fatal disorder. Uh, This is more common in the Ashkenazi Jewish community, and uh, one of the great outcomes of the last 30 years in this area has been voluntary screening of people before marriage so that they are alerted to their risk of having a baby with such a horrible disorder. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, and this is very soon to appear, is there are tremendous advances using genomics and DNA analysis on fetal cells circulating in the mother's blood that someday soon will be able to pull out of the mother's blood, analyze, and report back to her about not one or two or three, but literally hundreds of genetic conditions. So I think that's going to be a very major advance in screening for genetic
0: disorders. You mentioned gene editing a, a moment ago. Is are, are we moving towards an era where we're going to be talking more about cures rather than treatments?
1: Um, I think that's a great point. The uh, To this point, everything that I can think of and that I talk about in my book, I would regard, as you suggest, as a treatment that helps, but not a definitive cure. Now, gene therapy, which has been around for a long time, but which has really matured in the last five years or so, may be the first step towards what we could consider a cure. Uh, And there are some companies now that are moving rapidly for certain eye diseases, for hemophilia, for sickle cell anemia, that might offer that. But even there with gene therapy, gene therapy we may have to retreat. Gene editing theoretically could be a true cure, but it has some major obstacles. The, the most important one being that how are you going to get the gene editing tools into every cell in the body or most of the cells you need? And we still have a lot of work to do on that.
0: Well, what do you see as the biggest challenge to gene therapy being viable? Is it uh, scientific, or is it otherwise?
1: Well, uh, for gene therapy, I think there are some there are some very significant issues that cut across many different uh, aspects of our society. First of all, there are technical challenges, such as making enough of the particular type of virus, safe virus, that carries the gene. It's like a little guided missile that carries the gene into the cell. So there's the problem of what we call transduction. Uh, Then the body develops antibodies against foreign things. So neutralizing antibodies uh, is a problem where our new therapies have to overcome our own immune system at certain levels. Three is off target effects. We don't know exactly yet how the dosage is delivered and could, might we give too much or might we affect other genes by inserting certain viruses where they shouldn't go. That's been a problem in the past. But then there's the pricing issue. And this is actually a very big issue. If gene therapy is wonderfully successful, it means we'll treat maybe only once or twice in a lifetime. But it will cost hundreds of millions of dollars to develop drugs. So how can we price them in a manner that will justify the investment in the biotech community? And that is a looming problem. It's not here yet because there's so few drugs on the market. But 10 years from now, we may be saying, or we may be asking, can we afford gene therapy?
0: Well, there are a few moments in the book where you're discussing the development of a promising therapy for a horrendous disease, And suddenly there's the switch that's thrown and you're looking at it through the eyes of a venture capitalist. You're reading about a, a promising scientific development and the promise of a potential therapeutic. And then the reader is confronted with a real world calculus that can leave a potential therapy stalled in the lab. This is not only issues of safety and efficacy and delivery, but questions such as what is the patient population for a therapy and how much can be charged for the drug? How does your thinking shift as a venture capitalist, and what is it like to tell someone there's not a big enough market to invest in a drug?
1: Such an important question, and I have looked parents of dying children in the eyes and have said just that to them, and believe me, it's among the more painful things I've done as a physician. Uh, Let's just take an example. Again, I'll return to Tay-Sachs disease, where we've had a wonderful success, uh, success with genetic testing. I mean, Tay-Sachs disease is a fatal disorder of early childhood. Only about 10 to 15 children are born each year in the United States with that disease. There is actually a very good animal model, in this case a cat, an animal model of this disease in which gene therapy has shown real success. So normally one might say, gee, based that, you know, the cat is a lot closer to the human than is a mouse. If we have got success in the cat, the disease is the same, we should really go after this disease. But if you're only going to be treating 15 people in the United States and another 25 in Europe, 40 people a year, and it's going to take, as you said, seven, six, seven years and $100, $200 million to get this to market, who's going to take it on? In fact, so many of those 7,000 different disorders you mentioned at the at the beginning involve what I call ultra rare disorders that is occurring in you know less than 1 in every 250,000 births we don't have a regulatory or financial mechanism to bring those people cures that they they need to even if we have great science so we do do the calculus we try to we try to justify the exploration for as small a population as possible. And there are many companies now that take on diseases that maybe only affect 500 to 1,000 people in the U.S. and Europe. But there is a lower limit beyond which right now the structure does not let us, to go, let us go.
0: Well, you talk about some of the extraordinary parents and patient advocates and the role they've played to advance therapies. Is there something that can be learned from their experience in terms of advancing therapies?
1: I think there's many things that, that can be learned, and they are, as you probably know, I dedicated my book to them, to the parents of these children. Um, over and over again, in the last 10 or 20 years, I've seen a parent who knew nothing about a medicine or science have the, you know, tragic experience of having a child born with a terrible single gene disorder, and have their their lives changed. So that their mission in life was to drive research into this disease forward. I think of uh, Monica Conrad, who founded the Rett Syndrome Research Trust after her daughter was born with this terrible disease, Rett Syndrome. She has had a major impact on organizing the scientific community and driving it forward. I talk to her regularly, and I find her tremendously inspiring. Uh, There's another man I think of now in San Francisco, he and his wife. Gave birth to a little girl with a disease nobody had ever even heard of, and is he had single-mindedly driven this forward—a man named Matt Wilsey. Okay. And I could give you a, you know, twenty other names. The point is, a few determined families can really make a difference.
0: Well, the number game also seems to work against hopeful scenarios for for most rare diseases. And in reality, we're talking about thousands of diseases without treatments in a world where, on average, about thirty new drugs are approved each year. How do you see the landscape for therapies evolving, and are there reasons to be optimistic about the acceleration of new therapies for rare disease?
1: Uh, uh, So I think there's reason to be somewhat optimistic. First of all, I want to mention that I really, in the area of genetic disorders, I really see the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, that is the ultimate umpire on these drugs, as being a great ally to the biotech industry, just as much as the parents and the uh, the companies, the FDA wants to approve good drugs. So I think that it would be open to continual reexamination of the typical uh, regulatory pathway to see where we can streamline it. Um, for example, in rare disorders, it may be that we it would even be unethical to do placebo-controlled trials, where it would be better to just use natural history studies and then have smaller Enrollment of patient groups so we can shave years off here and there. But I'm wondering ultimately if what we need is a, for say, gene therapy, is a regulatory framework that says, for example, once you've approved a particular vector, by that I mean the virus, the safe virus that carries the gene into the body, you don't have to keep approving that vector for each new therapy. It's sort of a commonly accepted carrying vehicle and then uh, the question then is more you, you can go more quickly into safety studies and people sort of things like that. There's a lot more thinking to be done about this um, and um, I think the technologies will help us reduce the cost of these studies. You now gene editing, gene editing which you mentioned earlier will uh, provide us with great new animal models. It used to take years and years to make an animal model of a disease, but with these gene editing techniques called CRISPR, we can now make mouse models of almost any disease as quickly as we wish, which will help a lot. So there's hope, but we're not gonna go. Now, if you just look at the numbers of thousands of genetic disorders, and as you said, approval of at most 30 drugs a year across the board, We're not going to suddenly be approving 100 new drugs a year. It's going to be a very slow process, unfortunately.
0: Phil Riley, a venture partner with Third Rock Ventures and author author of Orphan, The Quest to Save Children with Rare Genetic Disorders. Phil, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at Danny at LevineMediaGroup.com.